Hello and welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we hike the Appalachian Trail, but we won't be hiking over 2,000 miles over several months. We won't be setting up our tent in the rain. In fact, we won't be camping at all. Instead, we'll spend several days hiking from lodge to lodge, trekking rather than backpacking, in the Blue Ridge Mountains. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we hike the Appalachian Trail in Shenandoah National Park in the state of Virginia. Welcome to the show, everyone. Please reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com with ideas for future episodes. And follow us on Instagram at trailsworthhikingpodcast, where you can see photos of the hikes we cover on the show. Let's do our walking the walk segment, where we talk about listeners who have hiked a trail after listening to an episode about it. First, I want to mention Miriam Metzner, who hiked the Rotovicentina that we talked about in episode 10. That's a coastal hike in Portugal. I have to say, this is one of the more popular hikes that listeners have done after hearing about it. And that's surprising to me because it's a little bit of an obscure location along the coast of Portugal and not a big mountain hike in the Alps or something like that. But I think Portugal is a very popular destination right now. And folks are looking for opportunities to do something new and interesting when they go to Portugal. So we've had quite a few listeners hike the Rota Vicentina. So listen to episode 10 if you haven't, if you want to hear about this amazing hike. And Miriam was inspired by that episode to hike it herself. She brought along a friend and hiked it in April. So Miriam hiked the original four sections that we talked about in the episode from Porto Covo to Adsesh, plus one more section to the north of that area. And this was her first multi-day hike, and she loved it. And she had it arranged through Max Adventure, which is the travel company that uh, my family has used a couple of times in the past as well. I also want to mention Angela Ferrocantu and Barbara Quintero Tavares. Angela and Barbara, after listening to episode 30 on the Grand Canyon hike that my wife and I did along the South Kaibab and Bright Angel Trails, had their interest peaked. And Angela applied for a permit in February 2023 for mid-June dates, following the same itinerary that my wife Andy and I did. And to her surprise, she got a permit. So she did not have to go through the long and complicated uh, procedure that I described in episode 30 about how you can do this hike even without a permit. I should say even without a permit in advance, because you, you do have to get a permit. But the way I described the hike in episode 30 you could get waitlisted to get a permit if you showed up a few days in advance. But listen to episode 30 if you want to learn more about that. So she got the permit for the first night at Bright Angel Campground and the second night at Havasupai Gardens. And she said the hike was exhausting but exhilarating and became an emotional journey on the last day of the hike going up on the final ascent, which I can understand when it's when you're really tired after a few days of hiking in that amazing canyon, it can be a pretty uh, 
emotional or even spiritual experience to emerge from the canyon. Angela says that few people she knows, especially girlfriends, would endure this tough hike, let alone be comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's something I've talked about quite a bit on the show, how it's important to be comfortable being uncomfortable and to realize the difference between being unsafe and being just uncomfortable. And backpacking can present a lot of challenges uh, in that way, but it's something you can definitely learn from. The permit, Angela got warned that temperatures could reach as high as 120 degrees Fahrenheit in the shade. Not knowing much about the hike, uh, that was kind of intimidating to her. But her friend Barbara agreed to join her on the trek, and they were able to do it. She says, as a side note, that they were fortunate that the inner corridor and bottom of the canyon temperatures were manageable. She said they were 96 degrees, 101, and 106 on the three days of their hike, which in Fahrenheit is pretty darn warm. Um, But she's from Texas, and so she and her friend Barbara are very acclimated to pretty hot and um, and in Texas, even humid weather. So the the temperatures in the Grand Canyon were something they were used to. She said that, in fact, the temperatures at the bottom of the canyon that I just referenced were actually even cooler than what the temperatures were in Texas at the time. And she said that the evenings were very pleasant and even a bit cool in the low 60s Fahrenheit. A few lessons learned from Angela One, that your pack is heavier than you think and that you should reevaluate every single thing you take with you. This is something I've mentioned a number of times on the show, and it's great to hear Angela reiterate that. As you may know from listening to the show, I am an advocate for lightweight backpacking principles and really looking at every piece of gear and deciding first if you need to take it at all, and secondly, if you do, is there a lighter version of it is important. Uh, She mentioned that there are crafty ravens at Bright Angel Campground. Uh, One unzipped her backpack and took out her wallet trying to find snacks. Or maybe it wanted some money to go buy snacks. I don't know. Uh, But it's a good point. There are often in established campgrounds critters who are very accustomed to people and the food they bring. So whether that be ravens or scrub jays or stellar's jays as far as birds or squirrels or chipmunks or, or other critters like that, that can definitely be something to watch out for in established camp areas. She also mentioned that when summer temperatures are a factor, get on the trail no later than 5 a.m. So that's an important one, right? You're thinking, how did she handle these kinds of temperatures? Well, you hike early and you get out of the sun in the middle of the day. So it's not as if you sit out there when it's full blazing mid-afternoon heat and, and hike with a pack on. In any event, it sounds like Angela and Barbara had a great trip, and I appreciate them uh, letting me know about it. I have photos of both of these trips that will be put up on the Instagram account. So again, please follow us at Trails Worth Hiking Podcast on Instagram. All right, let's talk about today's show. Our guest on the show today is listener Steph Lancaster. And let me give you a little bit of an explanation as to why I'm covering this trail and why when Steph reached out to me and told me she had hiked it, that I thought it would make a good episode. The bottom line is there are not many trekking opportunities with lodges, hotels, cabins, or hostels in the United States. I've talked about this before on the show. There are lots of listeners of the show who might not be comfortable camping or may hike with friends or family who prefer not to camp, but that doesn't mean you can't do a multi-day adventure even in the United States. We've covered lots of great trekking routes on this show where you can stay in all different kinds of interesting accommodations along the way. 
like huts in the Alps, which we covered in the Tour de Mont Blanc episode, episode 24, or hostels in Ecuador, which we covered in episode three, or tea houses in Nepal, which we covered in episode 15, or even really basic huts in Uganda, which was in episode 27, or Tasmania, episode 17. But we've covered very few hikes where those options are available in the United States. One episode that we did that did have that available was the Pemi Loop episode, which is episode 23, about a hike in New Hampshire, where our guest did that hike camping, but there are hut-to-hut options for that hike. So that's something, if you listen to episode 23, you could learn about as another opportunity to do this kind of hike in the U.S. And so when I heard from Steph about this particular hike, I thought this is a great opportunity for folks to get out to Shenandoah National Park and to hike on the Appalachian Trail. And if they want to, stay in some lodging along the way rather than camping, which, as I said, opens up the route to a lot more people. So that said, I jumped at the chance to talk about this hike. Now, let's start with Shenandoah National Park. It is in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Now, we've talked about the Blue Ridge Mountains before on a couple of different episodes on the show. We covered them on the episode on photographing the Blue Ridge Mountains, which is episode 33. In that episode, we talked a lot about the Blue Ridge Parkway, which is a roadway primarily in North Carolina that traverses the Blue Ridge Mountains. We also talked about the Blue Ridge Mountains in the Foothills Trail episode, episode 16, And that hike is primarily in South Carolina and covered the Blue Ridge Escarpment, which is where the Blue Ridge Mountains essentially end and drop off at the southern end of the range. But Shenandoah National Park is in Virginia, to the north of both of those locations. It's a long, narrow section of the mountains with the Shenandoah River to the west and the rolling hills of Virginia to the east. The mountains get up to about 4,000 feet high in the area, and they drop off pretty steeply on both sides of the park, pretty much a 3,000-foot drop-off or almost 1,000 meters on either side. There's quite a bit of fauna. There's white-tailed deer, black bear, bobcat, the big brown bat. There are toads and frogs and newts and salamanders. There's the eastern box turtle, the timber rattlesnake. There's skink, quite a few birds such as red-tailed hawks, Carolina chickadees, wild turkeys, and barred owls. As far as foliage and flora go, uh, there's a lot of red oak, there's tulip poplar, there's cove hardwood, and even some spruce fir. There's an underbrush of trillium, fern, blueberry, azalea, and even orchids. So let's talk about the American chestnut tree. This is a tree that once dominated the eastern forests from Maine to Alabama and comprised about 50% of the mountain forest of the U.S., It is estimated that if all the chestnut trees alive at the time um, when it was at its height had been in one pure stand, they would have been a forest of nearly 9 million acres. In size, the chestnut trees were considered the redwoods of the east. They grew to over a height of 100 feet and a diameter of nearly 10 feet. They're renowned for their weather-resistant wood and dependable crop of nuts And chestnut was of great value to the people who lived in the area and to the wildlife. But these big trees are now absent from the landscape. In the early 1900s, a fungus 
called Endothea parasitica, was accidentally introduced into New York City from trees imported from Asia. And this fungus, called the chestnut blight, quickly spread from its host, the American chestnut, and destroyed it throughout its range. There are chestnuts still today in this area, quite a few of them, but they only reach about 20 feet in height because once they get to that size, the chestnut blight attacks them and kills them. So the large 100-foot chestnut trees no longer exist in America. So it's unfortunate that the chestnut trees, although they are still there, are not the majestic tree they once were. As far as people in the area, native peoples have lived in this area going back 15,000 years, primarily in the Shenandoah Valley to the west of the park. For many thousands of years, they were nomadic peoples. During the woodland period of about 3,500 years ago to 500 years ago, the nomadic peoples settled into family groups and did do some agriculture in the area. But in the post-European contact period, the villages of native peoples in the Shenandoah area appear to have disappeared. Could have been from disease or warfare or other problems. But ultimately, the Iroquois native peoples took over the area from the peoples who had been there. They essentially kept the Shenandoah Valley empty of people and used the area for hunting and fur trapping. In 1744, the Iroquois sold the rights to the Shenandoah Valley to the U.S. as population growth of Europeans was pushing into the area. As far as Shenandoah National Park goes, in 1925, a law allowed the acquisition of the land to create Shenandoah National Park and the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Quite a few residents who were living there at the time were displaced when the government acquired the land. And many of them didn't actually have good title to the land, despite having lived there for generations. So many of them who were forced to leave were actually never compensated because they didn't actually own the land. I won't go into all the details of the disputes about displacing the settlers in the area, but just be aware that it happened. And although we should, of course, celebrate successful conservation of an area, it often comes with a human cost and an economic cost to the people living in the area. There were 465 families and more than 2,000 people living within what is now the park, and many of whom had roots going back more than 200 years in the area. Overuse of the land had actually displaced a good percentage of them before the park was even contemplated. But then, as I mentioned, once the park was established, it pushed the rest of them out. The park was finally established in December 1935. One of the most uh, prominent features of the park is Skyline Drive, the road through the park. As I mentioned, I talked about the creation of the Blue Ridge Parkway in episode 33. And the Blue Ridge Parkway begins at the southern end of the park and goes south into North Carolina. And Skyline Drive covers 105 miles of road through Shenandoah. And there are four access points to get to the road uh, where you pay your fee to go into the park. President Herbert Hoover had called for construction of the road in 1924 at the time when there was discussion about forming the park. Construction of Skyline Drive started in 1931, and it opened in 1934. Today, it is both a national scenic byway and a national historic landmark. So I'll I'll come back to the road in a few minutes to talk about how that intersects with the trail, but let me first talk about the lodges that are part of this hike. 
that you can stay in because they have an interesting history. The first lodge that we're going to talk about with Steph is the Lewis Mountain Resort. This area was created in the 1930s when the park opened. At the time, Virginia was a segregated state, as you may know. For those that live outside of the United States, let me explain that this meant that uh, blacks and whites were essentially given separate accommodations within the park. As accommodations were being contemplated in the park, the Secretary of the Interior, Harold Ix, who was a civil rights advocate, wanted to know how black visitors would be accommodated. And so the Lewis Mountain development opened in 1939 to be exclusively used by black citizens. But even from the start, gradual desegregation of the park began and was completed by 1950, which is long before the rest of Virginia was desegregated by law following the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So all that said, the Lewis Mountain area was a very popular place for black guests to visit. And the food there was even so well known and in high demand that eventually they allowed white guests in the dining room because people wanted to eat there. Also, President Truman visited Lewis Mountain with Chester Franklin, the publisher of a prominent black newspaper, and General Benjamin Davis Jr., the Army's first African-American general. So I think that says a lot that President Truman saw fit to show that he should visit there as a white president uh, and spend time with prominent black citizens at Lewis Mountain. So interesting history there that Lewis Mountain started as a, an accommodation for black citizens, but was ultimately integrated. And even today is a place where you can go and stay black or white or of any other color uh, in the park. The next accommodation is Big Meadows Lodge. That lodge was built in 1939 with stones cut from Masanutan Mountain by the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, and other laborers. One interesting fact about the Big Meadows area is the meadow itself. The meadow exists due to burning by humans, but this goes back a really long way. There's evidence up to 10,000 years old of the area being used as a hunting ground. And it is likely that those hunters use clearing brush and burning to keep the meadow as a meadow. Apparently, clearing the brush allows wild blueberry to grow, which attracts deer and in turn hunters. In the 18th century, Europeans with cattle continued the controlled burning practice in Big Meadow. And in fact, controlled burns in Big Meadow continue today as part of the park's management plan. And the third resort that we'll talk about with Steph is Skyland Resort. This area was originally called Stony Man Camp. It was built in 1895 at the highest point on what would become Skyline Drive at 3,680 feet. It was originally advertised as a dude ranch and was built for affluent visitors. And among the three accommodations we've talked about, it is certainly even today kind of on the higher end of the accommodations. So I said I'd come back to the Appalachian Trail in the park. So let me talk briefly about that. Benton McKay, who was a forester in the U.S. Forest Service and later a planner for the Tennessee Valley Authority, originally contemplated building the Appalachian Trail in 1900. But it wasn't until 1921 that he published an article proposing the trail. Tragically, uh, his wife, Betty, had committed suicide earlier in that year, and it was probably that unfortunate event in his life that spurred him to revisit his dream of the trail and to publish an article about it. 
And uh, to make a long story short, the trail was completed in 1937 and today has about 2,190 miles of trail from Georgia to Maine. The first reported thru-hike of the Appalachian Trail was in 1948, so a thru-hike meaning an end-to-end hike in one season. More specifically, let's talk about the Appalachian Trail in Shenandoah National Park. By 1931, the trail had been constructed through what later became the park, but after Skyline Drive was built, which we talked about a little bit ago, the trail had to be relocated. Benton McKay was not happy with this, and he was so unhappy with it that afterward, uh, he left the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, the organization that manages the trail, uh, to become a founding member of the Wilderness Society, which I think is a pretty cool connection, because if you think of what the Wilderness Society eventually accomplished in the Wilderness Act that led to wilderness areas, those areas today that are designated as wilderness uh, have no roads in them whatsoever, no structures, and no machines of any kind. And so McKay was true to himself in wanting the trail to be in wilderness and was so upset by Skyline Drive being built through the area that he essentially changed course in how he approached conservation. Today, the AT has about 101 miles of the trail that go through Shenandoah National Park. Virginia, in fact, has more Appalachian Trail miles than any other state. It has almost a quarter of the entire trail. All right, so with that background, let's jump into my conversation with Steph Lancaster about her adventure on the Appalachian Trail in Shenandoah National Park. Steph Lancaster, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Jeremy. Great to be here. So you are a lifetime day hiker and camper, but not really a lifetime backpacker or trekker. And it sounds like that is something you're more recently interested in. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Um, Yeah, my parents introduced me to backpacking when I was younger, Um, two sisters, and I can't remember many vacations that weren't involving a a tent. (laughs) That was the way we spent our time. Um, They were actually volunteer instructors at the Wilderness Center in Greensboro. So they taught kayaking, you know, wilderness survival, all that type of stuff. So I got a really early introduction to it, but just didn't get into the backpacking as I got older. It's really hard to find the time um, between the career and the kids and, and all of that. So we ended up taking our kids on a lot of national park excursions. That's what we do with our vacations as well. But recently I was actually part of the high tech layoffs and just <laughs> find myself with some, <laughs> thank you. But it's so funny because it's just been like, oh my gosh, I've got time to go hiking. Um, and so that's what I've been doing for the last, you know, three months really. So that's been exciting and, and just getting a lot more trails in. And then that just got me back into thinking, okay, I want to do the backpacking. So I've tried that a couple of weekends too, and it's been a lot of fun. Well, that's what I was going to ask, because the hike we're going to be talking about today is sort of a European style trek in the United States, which is cool, where you go sort of lodge to lodge. Um, it sounds like you've also been trying some backpacking with the tent. I have. I've got a lot of questions for you. I definitely need a new tent. I had a lot of old gear so that um, it needs to be updated somewhat. But yeah, this, I mean, the Lodge to Lodge is just the best way for people that don't have that gear 
to get out there to make a continuous trek, you know, that's multi-day. And there's not a lot. You're right. In the United States, we just haven't found as many available. And so I went searching specifically for, you know, a couple days on the Appalachian Trail. And so how did you come across this opportunity in Shenandoah National Park? Well, we, we've been up to Shenandoah a lot. Um, we actually live six to seven hours from there. We're on the coast of North Carolina. And so we have to drive to get to the mountains where it's always a long drive. So that means, you know, we're, we're kind of buffering in two days of driving for two days of hiking on the weekend and still taking time off. Um, but Shenandoah is really as close to us as the North Carolina mountains, believe it or not, because North Carolina is just so wide. So we've been up to Virginia a lot. And during COVID, my um, youngest, we put her in boarding school near D.C. for a couple years so that she could have that continuous in-person learning. And that led us to a lot of trips up there. She was about 45 minutes from Shenandoah. So we spent a lot more time in that area during those couple years. How did you specifically find out that there was an opportunity to do a multi-day lodge-to-lodge hike there? Um, I actually found it on, I think it was the AT Conservancy, you know, the website that I sent you. And I was just Googling, trying to find multi-day hikes with lodges, and it came up. I actually did find a couple more blogs, too, of people that had done the hike and had more details than that particular article provided. And we just got started. We just decided to, you know, go for it and do a couple days on the trail. And so once you decided you were going to do the hike, what did you do to plan for it? I am definitely the planner. My husband and I do a lot of hiking together. I love to plan this stuff. I've got a ton of Google Docs that I send links to the whole family as soon as we're going on the trip. And so I just looked into, again, blogs that I'd found about the trip. Um, All trails always, you know, we download the trail before we go and look for different waypoints along the way. And since we've been there before, we were familiar with a lot of the spur trails Um, and what we wanted to see along the way. And you also sent me an article, I think it was from 2007, by someone named Lori Potager. And that seemed to have a pretty good introduction to this area too. And I can post a link to that on on my um, show notes. Yeah, there's, I mean, Shenandoah, it's one of the most popular parts of the Appalachian Trail, or as some other, if you don't live in North Carolina, probably Appalachian. (laughs) And it is just, a fantastic part of the trail. It's the easiest, I think. Um, that 100 miles that runs through Shenandoah is really moderate hiking, so anyone can can take the trail on. And of course, there's, again, some spur trails that make it a little bit more challenging and, and add some miles if that's what you want to do. Um, but I think it's great for kids and dogs and trekkers that aren't used to a more challenging route. It's funny that you mentioned that we might call it the Appalachian Trail because as a as an ignorant West Coaster, um, that is what I called it for a long time until I started doing this podcast and I was corrected a few times. So now I, <laughs> now I know it's the Appalachian, although I'm still ignorant because when I looked up the national park in my brain, it was Shenandoah with an A. And I think I even spelled it that way on our invite to this uh, recording session. But then after looking at it more closely later, I realized it's actually Shenandoah with an E. So there I go. I'm learning some more about about East Coast pronunciations. 
All right, you all have to come. You have to come do it. It would be, you tell me everything I need to do. We just actually spent last summer, our truck was to California and, you know, going down from um, San Francisco down to San Diego. And we had a lot of fun, you know, did some hiking in Big Sur, some just light stuff. But we always try to get people to come to the Blue Ridge Mountains because there's just nothing like them. They're beautiful. That's what I hear. And I would really love to do that. So this is a good inspiration for me. So what time of year is the time to do this hike? Oh, anywhere from the spring when it opens. Sometime in in April, usually all three will open. And then anytime into October is usually a good time with the leaves changing. We actually went in July. (laughs) So it was a very warm time of year. This was again in, in 2020 when there just wasn't anything else to do but to get into the mountains. And so we were just excited to do that. But the valley is probably in the 90s during that time, and it's in the 70s on the trail. So it was a pretty warm time to do it. So to be clear, it sounds like the accommodations here are really seasonal. They're from April-ish to October, roughly. Correct. Mm -hmm. And in, in the spring, I would imagine you get good wildflowers and in the fall, probably great fall colors. Exactly. I mean, most of the trees are deciduous. So you will, if you, if you go there in the late fall or winter, it just isn't the same. We actually, we were just, we just got back from spring break and and spent it up near grandfather mountain in Boone and did a lot of trails in that area. And the wildflowers are beautiful. The forest floor is, you know, completely blooming, but at any type of elevation, just there isn't much in terms of it's still that brown, you know, no leaves on the trees. One thing that occurred to me, which is obviously the case also with treks in other countries where you stay in lodging, is that it does give you more flexibility around the weather, I think, because you're not forced to set up a tent in the rain. You know, once if there's a bad day of weather, you just go inside the lodge at the end of your hike and you can get dried out. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that that was really helpful. We actually had incredible weather on this particular trip. But I can tell you later about a trip I just took with my son (laughs) where that was not the case with terrible weather. So it's really helpful to know that you're going to have a hard structure that night and a dry place to sleep. Now, for the time and distance of this particular hike, the best information I could find was that it was about 10 miles a day. But I don't know if you have better information than that or, or if that comports with what it felt like for you. And that's right on target. It is just the perfect day hike, although it did take us a little bit less time than we thought. I mean, the park is really narrow and long, and it's made up Skyland Drive. There's four entrances to Shenandoah, and it goes about 100 miles, the Appalachian Trail, you know, from top to bottom. And it is just pretty easy, um, but one way is a lot more uphill, and that's the way we wanted to do the trek was about 1600 feet in elevation per day. But the layout of being 10 miles per day, if it was a little bit more strenuous would take a greater portion of the day. But because it was a kind of a moderate, even with adding some trails, it didn't take us as long as we thought. So we ended up at the lodge a little bit earlier than the day, um, each day than we would have liked. Gives you time for some appetizers and a glass of wine in the afternoon. Exactly. The craft beers were waiting for us. It was perfect. Okay. And so which way is uphill? Is it south to north? It is. Mm -hmm. And I think there's just a slight um, descent probably towards Thornton Gap at the very end. If you made this a three-day 
but for both of the treks we were doing, all trails rates them, I think, hard. South to north, I wouldn't say they were hard. I'd still say they were pretty moderate, um, but moderate in the other direction. I mean, I think that is because of the elevation change. But if you're doing 1,600 feet in 10 miles, it's still pretty gradual. So I know that you were able to do a couple of days on this trail or on this section of trail. Um, but it sounds like a lot of people traditionally do this as a three-day hike down to Thornton Gap, as you mentioned, to finish the end of it. One thing that occurred to me is that at the beginning, instead of going up and staying in cabins the first night without hiking, you could probably start even further south and hike that day as well. I don't know if that's something you'd ever thought about or if that's a possibility. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different variety. If you pull up a map of Shenandoah, you could kind of figure out what's going to work for you and how much time you have on the entry and exit day. For us, again, because of the seven hour drive, we really, you know, we came up after work on that Friday and just checked in late to the cabin, started early the next morning. So we were really pushing time. And it seems like the elevation, well, for me, the elevation on the East Coast seems pretty <laughs> moderate overall, but this is in the mountains. This is between three and 4,000 feet of elevation. And if you're there in the spring or the fall, you could be dealing with some cold weather or potential, you know, even snow or rain or whatever it might be. Right. There's actually some pretty wild fluctuations in the weather. I mean, that is one thing, even when we talk about just day pack, you know, what to bring. I do recommend regardless, even in July, we had several layers available to us and use them all at various points in the hike. That's a good point to mention layers of clothing is important. What are the other gear considerations for this hike? And I guess the big question that comes to mind is, are you basically carrying everything you need? So if you want to carry nice set of clothes for the lodges in the evening, you're carrying that as well. And what does that mean for what kind of pack you're carrying and other gear? That's, I'm, I don't remember how big, I think my pack is maybe a 25 liter. It's a pretty big day pack. And so I had the luxury of kind of bringing whatever we wanted, but we're pretty light packers in terms of clothes. These are not fancy lodges. So we didn't really, you know, I, I brought a fresh shirt, so maybe I wouldn't, I could still go in the dining room with those who weren't hiking all day. But other than that, we brought some basic toiletries, a lot of water, snacks, and fresh pair of socks, you know, to, to get to the next day. And is it possible when going from one lodge to the next to buy a packed lunch from the first lodge to bring for the day? There is. They make it really easy in terms of catering to through hikers there. And they have a lot of through hikers on the AT that come through all of these areas. So they do a great job of, you know, the way stations have things you can pack and go, or you could go for the actual box lunch at either lodge. So in July, when you were going through there, was that through hiker season? There were so many through hikers. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and we've been through there before, even with the, the kids where we've picked up hitchhiking, you know, through hikers that don't get off at one part of the trail and um, particularly Big Meadows, which is an area that has a huge way station. It's got a visitor center, a grill. They just come and lay on the grass and just feast. <laughs> you know, it's just a place that they all go for food. And so it's just a lot of fun to watch. It's a, a really neat culture to observe and be part of. Yeah, I really enjoy that too. We have a, a similar thing here with the Pacific Crest Trail. And if you hit it right during the season, you come across where most of them are and you get that kind of effect of just through hiker after through hiker, which can be a lot of fun. 
So what did you do for navigation? I mean, this is the AT, so I assume the resources are pretty available to make sure that you're staying on the trail and it's not that difficult, but I was just curious. Not at all. Just the download from all trails is plenty to need. I wouldn't say you're going to need a compass on this trip, but always be prepared and know where you are in the woods. But it was it was fairly easy to follow the white blazes. And pretty easy to find the lodges when you got to the spots where they were? Um, That part you really needed to pay attention to, actually. I'm glad you brought that up, Jeremy, because the, you know, Big Meadows in particular, you come out, well, both of them for Skyland and Big Meadows, you come out on a road. And so you do need to know what direction you're off trail for a little bit to find the lodge. Big Meadows was, again, I hate to tell somebody this, that, you know, regularly um, hikes out west, but there was a huge hill. You think you're at the very end and the lodge is at the top of just so you're you're off trail, you have gotten to the wayside, and then there's just this gigantic incline. And I would estimate it's about 700 feet because um, when I was reading the description of the to sort of refresh on the next side of the trail, that's how far you come down immediately, you know, when you descend on the second day. So we were a little bit surprised by that, especially in July, because most of that is in the sun. (laughs) So that was not my favorite part of the trail. Other than that, it's, again, well, well marked, lots of signage. I think it would be hard to get lost. And getting there from a major area, if you're an out-of-towner, it sounds like coming through Dulles Airport in Northern Virginia is the closest major hub. It would be. I think there may be an hour and a half to get to the uh, northernmost entry of Shenandoah, and we come in from the south. Okay. And how did you handle the fact that it's a one-way trip with your vehicle? We actually did do a shuttle. Um, We could have hiked back, of course. You could just make that a round trip if you had a little bit more time. But we had found a list online of different folks that were willing to shuttle. Um, It's not a well-populated area. Of course, it's a paid national park, so it does require some thinking ahead to get that. You can't just call an Uber (laughs) to make sure you can get that shuttle taken care of. And you mentioned that when you arrived, you stayed in cabins the first night before the hike. And is that the Lewis Mountain cabins? It was. Yeah, they have a couple different varieties of cabins available that are right next to the campground. Beautiful campground, little camp store in case you forgot anything. They're very rustic. There's no air conditioning. But there is actually the ones that we chose had an attached bath. So it felt pretty luxurious. And then it served the purpose great. You can leave your car there and grab coffee at the store in the morning and head out. I assume if you've paid to come into the National Park, that's pretty much all you need to do as far as permitting. There's no trail permits? Correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing I noticed is just in looking online that there are some companies or maybe it was there was a website called Go Shenandoah that offered a package for this exact hike where they basically booked the places for you. I don't know if that's worth the time or money, but that is an option for people who want to do almost nothing and still do the hike. Right. Okay. That would be good. Have a little concierge. Um, I, you know, with both of these lodges, I might call myself. I mean, we usually book online, but I will say with Big Meadows in particular, the accommodations are really different depending on what you want. There's the main lodge there, and then there's outer cabins. And I would definitely recommend the main lodge. 
it's a lot more rustic, but they have a terrace area that are the oldest rooms. And again, there's no air conditioning there. They're very basic, but those are the ones if I was going to, if I was booking it far enough in advance to get those rooms again, I would do that. Okay. So for someone like me who hasn't been to Shenandoah National Park, what can you tell me about what this area looks like? You know, what kind of forest are we talking about? How hilly, you know, just sort of what's the environment? And what are we going to see if we're hiking there? Well, there are just a really a wide variety. There's no huge waterfall, but just two waterfalls in particular there that are well known and a lot of creeks along the way. Very beautiful rolling hills. These mountains, as you said, are all between 3,000 and 4,000 feet in elevation. And there's a lot of peaks and overlooks and just a lot of foliage and also a lot of wildlife that people usually see in the park. So it's just a beautiful area overall. I really don't understand the physics behind the Blue Ridge and how it works in terms of the light hitting it, but it is blue. Every view of the mountains has that blue tint to it because of the types of trees that are there. And um, it's just a beautiful place. Did you see any wildlife on the way? This trip, we saw a couple of white-tailed deer, um, lots of frogs, salamanders, that type thing, but no bears. I mean, I guess I shouldn't sound disappointed (laughs) because I didn't really want to run into any. It's better for them if they don't see people, but we did actually see past a mother bear and a couple cubs one spring when we were out in Shenandoah with the kids, Um, and it's just very common to see black bears in this area. So why don't we talk a little bit about what the itinerary for this hike would look like doing the sort of traditional three day, two night, the way most people might do this lodge to lodge trek. And it sounds like the first thing you do is, like you said, you get yourself to the Lewis Mountain cabins and probably stay there for the night before you start hiking. And then the first day is Lewis Mountain cabins to Big Meadows Lodge. Can you tell us a little bit about that day? Sure, that is probably... It was actually, it had the least variety, but it was my favorite day of hiking. I think the anticipation and excitement of starting off on something like this is always just a lot of fun. It's mostly through the forest. A lot of the Appalachian Trail is very single track. So you're walking in just a really narrow, thin path, well-maintained. They do a great job of maintaining the trail, but it's pretty thin and it just makes you feel very connected in terms of the environment you're in. We had a couple of spur trails we did on the way there. One was down to a creek near Dark um, Hollows, which is actually a really popular waterfall that I wouldn't recommend doing as part of this just because there's a lot of traffic on that trail. But then um, Bear Fence is another spur trail that we did off of it that's more of a rock scramble and has a really beautiful overlook um, and you know, kind of 360 view of the park. So we did both of those and just kind of took our time along the trail, you know, stopped for lunch. And as I said, took our time, but still got there pretty quick. (laughs) It it didn't take us uh, more than a a half day to make it. It was just a really nice day overall. And so how is Big Meadows Lodge and what is that like? Sometimes when you come off a trail, there's this kind of dissonance with just being back in reality. And I think that's what keeps a lot of people from wanting to do a trek versus backpacking. But Big Meadows is just so rustic. There are no TVs there. You're more likely to see people playing board games in the main area. And it just has that very, I think it was built in the late thirties. So it just is 
stone and wood and just a gorgeous place. And so uh, we didn't feel that at all. We just felt really at home and just glad to have a shower and a good meal there. It was really nice. And the views are wonderful because it is at the very top. You know, it has, it's at pretty high elevation in the park. Just really accommodating. Did you meet other people there who were hiking similar to you or were most of the people there probably just coming to stay there for the weekend? Most people there were staying for the weekend. Yeah. I saw a couple of hikers with larger packs that I wondered if they had kind of combined it with a backpacking trip, but I didn't see anybody that seemed to be in in the same boat as us. I don't think it's really common. Um, It's funny to hear that there's a package advertised because I feel like it's something that's under the radar for sure that this is available. So the next day you went from Big Meadows Lodge to Skyland. What is that day like? That day has a lot more variety. You start off going completely in that 700 feet, you know, just quick descent. Um, and you go past Big Meadows Campground, which is a really large campground that's just a, slightly below the lodge and just a stone's throw, you know, from some of those tent sites. And then you go through, it's just, the woods are just very dark down there, just lots of fern carpeted, you know, floor. I remember we passed by a stream where just there were tons of those, um, where people had stacked rocks, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and that kind of just made a lot of different formations. Like a cairn. And yeah, it was really pretty. And so we went through that and then through the day, um, on and off, we just kept on coming out on various overlooks. And then we descend, you know, go back into the woods. There was just a lot of variety on that day. The first gap overlook is Fisher's Gap. And then we had uh, a small spur trail that visited the Rock Spring Cabin and Hut. This is on like the western side of Hawksbill Mountain. That's the tallest in the park. And the trail kind of skirts Hawksbill. And this shelter is a pretty famous one on the AT. And it's interesting that it has a cabin and the privy right there next to it because the cabin is rentable. <laughs> so you may have someone actually renting this cabin beside the AT shelter. It's very unusual, but it was really pretty down there and, and we enjoyed visiting that. And then there's nice views from Timber Hollow, um, Spitler Knob and Franklin Cliffs. So there's a couple places, you know, that you came out had a good overlook and then could go back into the woods. And of course, in July, we really appreciated that because if it had been all on the ridge, it would have been a little too warm. But so we got a lot of variety that day of, you know, in and out between the ridge and and the woods. My understanding is that that's quite a bit of the Appalachian Trail is that it's sort of a lot of tree tunnel, then you come out to an overlook, and then you're back in the forest, and then you come out to an overlook. Is that your experience? It is. And that's what I'm most familiar with, you know, hiking. Not that it's not, I've done some incredible hiking out West and love it, but it, that feels very much like home to me because of all the hiking we did, you know, growing up in that area. So it's nice. And then you come out, this is another one where you come out on a road. So you go through Skyland stables. They actually have an amphitheater and a whole horse stable because they have some horse trails in Shenandoah and they cater to the equestrian community there. And so you come out right by the stables. So we said hello to the horses, went around. There weren't any people in the area. It was really interesting. Went up the road to the lodge. And 
this lodge, Skyland, was probably our least favorite. I mean, it's a nice lodge, but it was a little bit more commercial, I would say. It's bigger and did have a lot more people, a gift shop, you know, that type of thing. But that was still just a great place to get a meal. Both of the lodges had great food, I will say. I mean, that could be part hiker hunger. I don't know. But there's like Big Meadows has a famous blackberry pie that everybody raves about. It was really good. Definitely, they have local craft beers at both places and just some really good food. And then if you were to hike the last day, which I know you weren't able to do on this particular trip, that would be, would it be roughly the same kind of distance to get to Thornton Gap? It would. It's about 10 miles. And that one actually, I would love to try that, you know, on our next hike. Um, That's probably my biggest regret about the trip is that we didn't take another day off work, but that's always harder to navigate. But there are four peaks on that trip that I think would be well worth seeing. And um, I'd love to do that trail. And I think, as you mentioned earlier, I think there's a good section of that at the end that's all downhill. So people would have that to look forward to if they did it as well. True, true. Or maybe if they're younger hikers, they look forward to the downhill. I don't so much. <laughs> that's why I've got my trekking poles. Definitely my my knees like the uphill better than the down. So. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. <laughs> so why do you think this is a trail that people should consider hiking? Or why do you think this hut to hut, sort of lodge to lodge, part of the AT is something that people should consider doing? I think the variety is a huge part of that. As I was saying, just to have a trail that has a little bit of everything um, is fantastic. And again, whether you just don't have the gear to backpack, or if you have a partner that is a little reticent to go and spend that time in the woods, or you're just in a hurry, um, you know, you just want something super convenient to schedule it is a really great option to be able to have a multi-day hiking experience that pulls you, you know, a little bit more into just away from it all. Um, That's fantastic. I can tell you that even though my wife, for example, will go backpacking with me, if there's an opportunity to stay in a lodge instead, she would take it. So, (laughs) so for someone like her, this is, this is a hike that she would probably really enjoy. Are there particular moments or a memory from this particular trip that stand out for you? Or is it more sort of the general feeling? Or what can you say about kind of how it left you? Yeah, definitely the general feeling. I couldn't think of one specific memory from this one. And a lot of Shenandoah, a lot of our trips blend together, you know, from all of the hiking there, because a lot of it has that same feel, but that's what draws us back time after time to visit the park. It's a place that if any of your listeners haven't been there, I highly encourage them to do. Was there anything that happened on this hike that you didn't expect? I think just how quickly we made it to each lodge was something that I didn't expect. Um, I would have liked for the days to be a little bit longer. And that is one thing. It it is going to be a 10-mile hike. Maybe you could make it into a 12-mile with a couple of side trails. But it is probably a partial day um, to get from lodge to lodge. But I think that that's great. You have time to clean up and get to dinner and go to bed early. You make a really good point, which is if you know that in advance, why not do two or three side trips? And normally when you're doing a hike that's from point to point, you have this sort of reticence to go off of your route because you're thinking we have a long way to go today and why would I want to add miles? Right. But if it's a doable distance and it's only half a day anyway, you can plan for that and you can go see a waterfall or go see a nice overlook that you might otherwise hike right by. 
Right. I think it is really variable for whatever. I think most of your listeners could probably go a lot longer, you know, but if you, again, are you taking a family member or a younger child or a dog even that, you know, this might be a, a little bit of an easier hike and more manageable to be able to do it all in one day and still have some rest time. So what would you do differently if you went back and did this again? Would it be to do more of that or would it be something else? It would definitely be to do Thornton Gap. I would take that extra day off of work. It's so funny now in perspective that I'm finding, I'm just like, why didn't I take more time off? I can't believe I left, you know, vacation days on the table even, but that's how it goes when you're wrapped up with work. So yeah, well, you have the time now so you can go back. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I actually have a really big birthday, you know, coming up. Nice round number. I was wondering when you were celebrating your nice round number, if we were at the same one, but it's coming up in July. And so in June, we are going to um, go back to Zion and hike the Narrows. Last time we went there, the kids wanted to do Angels Landing. And I said, okay. And, you know, that was the bigger hike that we did. And I've always wanted to do the Narrows. So we're going to go back. And my son is doing a cross country trek this summer with his friends. So he'll be out there, I think, at the same time, which would be great. Great. That sounds like a lot of fun. Okay. Thank you for telling me about this Lodge to Lodge trek in Shenandoah National Park. But while I have you, I have a few other questions. What's the one hike you've done besides this one that others shouldn't miss out on? I hesitate to say it because I know you took years to do this hike because you thought it was too like commercial. <laughs> but um, it's definitely Half Dome. We got so excited to do that hike. We did it in one day, did the the, the hard way, you know, up at 3 a.m. And, and hit the trail. And it was just everything that we dreamt it would be in terms of, you know, excitement and challenge and the waterfalls and the views. And it was just fantastic. I did have that, though, the last couple of miles when you're coming down, just that little bit of like, uh, you know, you get back into the crowds and... um But it was just a phenomenal hike. So it's a lot of fun. I will say that I do not disagree. (laughs) Um, I think that it is a it's a unique hike. There's no doubt. There's no other hike like it with those cables going up the face of that rock. And it is an iconic hike. So I have no problem recommending that everybody do that hike. And I wouldn't have done an episode on it if I didn't really enjoy it. But yeah, I mean, that was just my, that was was just my own ego for a long time saying, "Ah, I don't want to follow the crowds and go up there. But when I finally did, because my kids really wanted to do it, I enjoyed it a lot. So I have no problem recommending it. All right. What is a hiking or camping food that you could eat every day? I would say gorp for sure. We actually make that all the time and just have it for a snack around. Um, And also whenever I'm on the trail, Growing up, we'd always have an apple. And it's so funny because I've become a wimp about my weight and what I'm carrying. I'm kind of a smaller person. And so I have to really watch, you know, how much weight I'm taking on the trail. And so occasionally my husband will just show up with an apple, which is so sweet. Like in the middle of the trail, like I wouldn't carry the apple because it's too heavy. <laughs> but he'll, he'll bring one out of his pack. He's always got like everything you can imagine you'd want in the pack. So apples and gorp. For sure. Do you have a particular gorp recipe that is your favorite? Just the basic. I mean, peanuts, almonds, raisins, and M&Ms. Plenty of chocolate in there. Yeah. Yeah, that's basic, but not everybody would go M&Ms. Some people might go chocolate chips, you know, who knows? Oh, no, it's got to be the (laughs) M&Ms. All right. 
what is the worst weather you've ever experienced while outdoors and how did you handle it? Well, you know, I told you I've been trying to get back into backpacking or do it, you know, as an adult. And so, um, and we do need new gear. So my son and I went a couple of weeks ago to Uwari National Forest, which is near us, you know, in Southeast North Carolina. And so, you know, not huge elevation. We just picked a 12 mile trail, just thought we'd do a shakeout on that trail. And we saw some really bad storms coming in and we were aware of them and thought, okay, well, we're going to do a 10 miles the first day just so that we can get below the ridge line, you know, as much as it is. And, um, so we hiked in and this storm that came in, I mean, it woke everybody up for hours around like at one o'clock in the morning, it was just lightning, thunder, and just pouring rain. Well, Jeremy, evidently I had not done a really good site selection for my tent. So he's in his hammock. I'm in my tent. You know, when the lightning starts and I realize he's attached to a tree, I tell him to get into the tent with me. And then I feel water on the sleeping bag. And I'm like, how's that happening? We had just, you know, re-waterproofed it before we went. I'm not sure what's happening. Well, the water is coming in from the bottom. It is like we are floating on probably four inches of water because there had just been this torrential, you know. (laughs) So I kind of assessed the situation. I'm like, we're hiking out. We're heading to the car. So we did the last two miles at two o'clock in the morning, got off the trail, came back in the morning for all the rest of our gear. We just took the essentials and I just thought, okay, this is, I mean, we do it all over again. It just the best memories because the Uwari, the trail runners that come through there pretty often. So they have actually have reflectors on every 10th tree on this trail. So it really wasn't dangerous to hike out other than just trying to get out of the lightning but it was definitely a memory. Well, I like that you made the call. You decided, look, this is too much and this is not where we want to be in this situation. And you just went for it and left. That can be a hard thing to decide to do. So that's, that's a little bold and I think probably the right call. I think one of the things that happens sometimes when you set up a tent is you see an open space and you think, great, flat open space. But a lot of times a flat open space is sort of flat and open because it's a channel for water. Yes. And you can end up setting up right in the middle of a channel sometimes if you're not careful. So that that has happened to um, people I've hiked with before, too. It's not uncommon that something like that will happen. Okay. I'm glad to hear that from a more experienced backpacker that that wasn't completely. But yeah, in, in retrospect... I think I would have done things a little bit differently, but that's, you know, we're, we're, that's what shakeouts are for. You know, we were just trying to test out our gear, figure it out before we get on a more challenging hike. And we hope to upgrade our gear and do a lot more of that in the future. It is also true that moments like that are way better when you look back on them and remember them and are actually the most memorable times you have doing outdoor activities, but they can be a little bit frightening or at least you know, not that fun in the moment. Yeah. I mean, my son was making me laugh the whole time we were going down that trail because it, even parts of the trail were just washed out. We were like, are we on the trail, like in walking in a stream? Or are we on the trail? Yeah. <laughs> we were just slogging through water. It just came in really fast. And it was, it was pretty funny in the moment as well. So. Okay. Last question. What is the most valuable thing that hiking or camping has taught you? I think it's just perspective. Hiking is my favorite thing to do. And just going into the woods, 
has always been something that has been really valuable. And I wish more people had that experience because I think that it's missing right now in our society in terms of how everyone is always so connected and our our attention spans are so short and it's just really easy to lose perspective and you go into the woods and it just resets. You kind of recenter every time. I think that's a great place to leave it. Steph Lancaster, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. I enjoyed it. Thanks again to Steph Lancaster, and I hope that Steph and I have inspired you to hike the Appalachian Trail in Shenandoah National Park, or maybe even to hike a bigger portion of it somewhere else along that wonderful trail. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend about it, or better yet, give us a good review on whichever podcast service you use. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Before we go, I want to remind you that you can get delicious vegetarian and vegan backpacking meals through Outdoor Herbivore, our sponsor for the show. As I always say, you don't need to be vegetarian or vegan to enjoy these meals. They're fantastic backpacking meals made with quality ingredients, packed in compact packaging so they don't take up too much space in your pack and have loads of calories for a hungry hiker on the trail. So Outdoor Herbivore at OutdoorHerbivore.com is a great place to go to get your backpacking meals. You can use our discount code TWH10P, Trails Worth Hiking 10%, to get 10% off your order at OutdoorHerbivore.com. Outdoor Herbivore ships worldwide, so even if you're not in the United States, you can order from Outdoor Herbivore. And in addition, they sell bulk ingredients. So if you want to put together your own meals and just buy, for example, dried bean flakes or dried rice or other ingredients to make your own meals, you can do that through Outdoor Herbivore as well. Thanks again to Outdoor Herbivore for sponsoring the show. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we head north, starting from iconic Niagara Falls and heading north of the border. We'll hike 900 kilometers along a diverse and challenging trail that is Canada's oldest and longest marked footpath. The trail traverses the Niagara Escarpment, and though it is in wilderness, it passes not too far from Toronto and ends up on a peninsula in Lake Huron on Georgian Bay. We'll hear about a thru-hike where the entire hike was done sleeping each night in a camper van. Wait, how is that possible? You'll have to listen to find out. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Bruce Trail in Ontario, Canada. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail that you've hiked, don't hesitate to reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. And again, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Trails Worth Hiking Podcast. So start planning your next hike, and before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.